So, uh, I just finished recording the rumination for this episode, and I was... I, I didn't have much to say. I only have about three-quarters of a page worth of notes here. And I even worried about the quality of that particular rumination. But as I went through it, I felt like I really nailed it. Oh, awesome. my computer crashed. It's actually worse than that. My computer didn't just crash. My computer crashed when I was at maybe 20 seconds from hitting conclude, from, from stopping the recording. It was like a 40-minute video. So in addition to just wasting my time, which I don't have a lot of right now, I wasted what I felt was a good episode. Like, it was really doing well. So I'm a little angry. But I got a schedule to keep, so I'm going to do the best I can to just repeat everything I just said. Hi, I'm the Lore Runner, and we're talking about the TNG episode Survivors. First thing I want to share is that, as I've told you guys before, when I was a kid, I used to categorize these things based on VHS, right? And so I had the couple of VHSs, which were the episodes I really liked, which I would watch, you know, rewatch frequently, just pop them right in and watch it. This episode was on that list, and going back as an adult, it's very obvious why. There's a lot of really good quality on display throughout the course of the episode. I want to give a special praise to Mr. Wagner, who actually wrote this episode, and based on that quality alone, it's a bit of a shame we lost him. I mean, from everyone's accounts, he just didn't enjoy working on a science fiction television show like this one. But, uh, I don't know. I feel like he did a very, very good job of this episode. Excellent acting, excellent directing. I always worry, and I said this last time too, I always worry that when I have an episode that I just really like, I don't have much to say about it. You know, I always like to discuss why I like it, but I don't really have much to ruminate upon, to, to put it bluntly, right? Uh, it's a problem I had a lot over in Babylon 5, why the average episode length over in Babylon 5 was like 20 minutes, because it was just, this is great, and then there's this and this and this, and this is great, the end. Um, I want to give a special shout-out to Troy's outfit in this episode. <laughs> no, In all sincerity, I can't be the only one who, I know I'm not the only one who liked it when Troy finally went into a uniform. Um, because it always weirded me out that Troy, of all people, would wear something different. Now, if that's her preference, fine, but why is she the only one who does that? I mean, we know the out-of-character reasons for that. But I hope at the very least this like light, teal, off-center, flowy dress thing she's got going on is at least more comfortable for Marina Sirtis than the previous jumpsuit, which we know was uncomfortable, because, good lord, that just does not look pleasant to walk around in. I, uh, I, f- I feel bad for her. <laughs> then again, the uniforms themselves have had varying levels of pleasance to walk around in, although by this point in the show they have actually fully switched over to the new wool uniforms, which are far more comfortable for the actors and it caused them a lot less trouble. So that's nice. <laughs> we finally got the actors to not be in pain on set. Anyways. Um, I also want to give special shout-out to uh, Anne Haney and John Anderson. Now, Anne Haney is the woman who plays uh, the, the wife, whose name I actually can't remember right now. Um, because I'm livid with rage, but she also played uh, uh, Miss Ronan, uh, the, the the judge, the Bajoran judge back in the episode Dax over on Deep Space Nine. Um, and she's a good actress, and she actually managed to add a lot of humanity and simple um, believability to her role that makes her very endearing to watch. And I really like John Anderson. Uh, some of you may recognize that name. I imagine most of you don't. Sadly, he actually passed away just a few years after this episode, which sucks. Because um, the man knows how to act heavy and how to act quiet. 
he's also a bit of a veteran from the Twilight Zone, which is where I recognize him from. Um, and that's the next thing I want to talk about. We'll go ahead and segue here. This episode is basically an episode of the Twilight Zone. It's self-contained. It's got a mystery that is slowly unveiled. It's very tightly constructed. Uh, it's very clever in its own right. And it's very character-focused. And it, it leans a lot on the quality of its acting. Although it does also have a lot of very important special effects, too. Cover that when we get there. And I don't really think that's a bad thing. It's just an interesting approach for how well that formula worked for this. It makes me wonder if the, you know, the occasional not-connected episodes of Star Trek could have been better served by more of this Twilight zone thing. In fact, I know for a fact that the actual creators of Star Trek thought this as well because they later started pulling more and more of these types of episodes into Star Trek, most notably from... Um, uh, uh, tip of my tongue. Uh, I, I can't think of his name. God, I'm sorry. I'm so angry. <laughs> I know that sounds so stupid. I was so pissed. I had done an awesome, awesome episode. And really nailed something I was very nervous about. And then my computer crashed. I'm already looking into what the problem was. I have a pretty good idea of what happened. Uh, it is it is either my memory or my PSU. And both are relatively easy to replace. So that's going to be happening soon. <sighs> Brennan Braga. This is something that is really showcased in later TNG and in Voyager, when Brennan Braga just kind of kept being asked to shovel out the same type of scripts over and over, which, although not quite as tightly as designed as this one, are basically Twilight Zone episodes. And, if I might be so bold, Brennan Braga, when he really shines, when he's really doing his best, basically pulls off this level or higher of quality of episode. Uh, as much as we like to fling poo at Mr. Braga, uh, a lot of people tend to forget that he did some really good stuff on TNG. Anyways... So, uh, next thing I want to talk about is the fact that they're responding to a distress signal that was sent three days ago. Now, I went ahead and went on a segue last time I did this, so I'm going to do that again, because I really feel like this is worth talking about. How many of you guys have ever played a 4X game, or a grand strategy game, or a board game, which is like a military war, diplomacy, whatever game, right? I mean, I have, obviously. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I imagine at least a few of you, too. You know, Birth of Federation, something? I don't know. Um, one of the things that strikes me most is that there's this situation where you, you're like building up and building up and you have lots of territory and lots of resources and your people are happy and your tech level is high and your society is good and then these undeveloped jackasses who are way worse than you and way show up and they've got a stronger military so they just kind of start eating you as you go. How many of you have had that happen? I'll raise my hand. That was actually one of my biggest problems when I first started playing Forex games way back with Civilization 2 back in the 90s. Um... Now, I bring that up because I really feel like that's where the Federation is right now in history. And I swear this is related to the episode, so hear me out, okay? Um, this, this is just becoming more and more of a trend, and kind of has been already and will continue to be for several other episodes uh, in the future, that the Federation right now is in the winds of change golden era, right? I've already mentioned that several times. This is, you know, the Klingons are our friends, the Romulans are at a distance, the Cardassians are, you know, we've got a treaty with the Cardassians, we've got a treaty with the Zinkethi, we're not at war with anyone. And I really feel like the Federation at this point in history was just like, Nope, nope, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Woo! You know, and so there's all these colonies. There's so many issues with colonies in TNG at this point in time. There's all these colonies expanding in all directions. And it's not like the Federation isn't supporting them. You know, here, here's the resources. Here's the ships. Here's the replicators. Here's the communicators so that when you need help, we can respond to you. 
And they just, they're dandelion out into the stars. And based on certain bits of evidence, which, I'm sorry, forgive me, I don't feel like repeating. I feel like this episode, uh, Ranan 4, I want to say, uh, is not exactly all that far from core Federation territory. I mean, <laughs> in general, if, if you were to look at a map of, of, of the galaxy of Star Trek, which there's actually several different maps which disagree with each other, but... Point being, if you look at the map, you can kind of trace the Enterprise D's location-ish based on where they're at in the show. Like, they start out way over here, you know, Farpoint Station, right, and this whole sector out here, and they're kind of out on the fringe, and I'm trying to flip this because it's actually over this direction for me, but you get the point. And then Season 2, they kind of start coming back here, and there's a lot more stuff further in. In Season 3, we go way back in. In fact, we have a lot to do with the core Federation territories, including going back to Earth, which was where we start Season 4. And then we kind of shift over to the complete opposite side, over here to the Beta Quadrant, when we start dealing with the Klingons and the Romulans. Um, so you can kind of track the Enterprise's relative location based on season, based on what's going on. My point for bringing that up is, based on that and other information in other episodes, and what they mentioned in this episode, it seems likely to me that they are not particularly that far out onto the fringe. This is not exactly a small colony. What is it, 11,000 people, something like that? A whole cityscape? And yet this colony sends out a distress signal, and it takes the Enterprise three days to respond. Think about how long that is for just a second. Process for a moment. A, a superior force which is showing up with guns and, and raiding intent that is just pillaging and looting and killing and destroying for three days uninterrupted. That is a huge period of time to have between initial contact and first point of response. That's insane. Now, we know the colonists tried to fight back, but by all accounts, they were hilariously outgunned. What the hell is the Federation doing? Like, I'm sorry, I'm already angry about the computer thing, but I was angry before this because this kind of pisses me off. The Federation is basically saying, yeah, we got your back, but... Where is the back getting here? Now, this is something that, admittedly, is actually in character for this point in history. That's why I said this is the winds of change, golden era thing. Yeah, everything's going well, and there's a lot of positive things that happen as a result of this period of time. Having a counselor on the bridge of the Enterprise is really the best point I could ever mention for what this era of Starfleet is like. That that's normal, that that's okay, that nobody questions that. Is just, that says everything about where they're at mindset-wise at this point in history. And we know that at least part of this, out of character, probably most of this, is because Roddenberry was really pushing his version of Star Trek into the show, and then Roddenberry, Roddenberry was pushed further and further out of control, which led to other versions of Starfleet and the Federation building in. But I have to point out something, and forgive me for segueing just a little bit further here. One of the things that I find interesting is if you track the course of Federation history from about the beginning of TNG until about the end of DS9, it's almost, it, it fits weirdly well. It, it, the, the whole construction of events actually does make a strangely large amount of sense. There are individual points that are just, meh, usually thanks to specific episodes. But you see the Federation in this, no, nope, no, nope. you know, the Federation in the Maquis, right, over on DS9, which we've already covered at this point, where they were willing to go just bend way over backwards in order to maintain a treaty just because they wanted so badly not to be at war with anyone. That the truce was more, more that the peace treaty was more important to them than the actual peace. That they were willing to basically abandon people to the wolves for what is functionally no reason. This is the era Federation is in. When these events happen here, three days response time because their fleet is so pathetic and tiny. 
I mean, as we'll see at Wolf 359, they've got, what, 40-something ships? I, I don't remember the exact number, forgive me. But that's supposed to be a huge fleet for this era. And yet, as we'll see later on DS9, they will field hundreds of ships in a single fleet. But I bring all of this up because this all makes sense to me. This is the beginning of the kick in complacency, to, to quote Picard on this one. That the Federation, in my honest opinion, needed this. That it was blind to the point of stupid naivete to the point of idiocy that the Federation believed that we were good, that they didn't have to defend themselves. 11,000 people died on this colony because the Federation didn't think to assign defenses to the outpost, like automated defenses or, or maybe tighter patrols, more ships patrolling the borders, more ships patrolling their own territory, anything. Instead, we got nothing. And 11,000 people died now I know what you could say, that sits on Kevin for not interfering, and that's arguable. Move, remove him from the equation for a second. Now you just have 10,999 people, okay? Or 98, I guess, because she wouldn't be there either. You get my point? This is actually kind of aggravating. And it's not like the Enterprise wasn't rip-roaring its way over there, but i got to wonder, three days at maximum warp? How frickin' far away was the Enterprise? Because that's a long ways. And in fact, that brings up my other point. Why was the Enterprise the closest ship? That's sad. I really think, as horrible as this sounds, and as, as many deaths were caused by it, the, the, Wolf 359 was a necessary step for the Federation's progression in character. Because if not for that, this kind of thing would just keep happening. Now the next thing I want to talk about, let's just get, let's stop ranting for a second, is the Husnock. Who the hell are these guys? We never see them. In fact, there is an argument, which I'm going to level at you as well, uh, that we never see a Husnock ship. Now, I know, I know what you're going to say. There's the big ship, and everyone identifies it a Husnock ship. But here's the thing. This is a Federation colony in Federation space, okay? This is not super far away. I mean, three days is a decent distance. but And, and as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're at least in Federation space at this point, right? So if these people are really as violent, as widespread, 50 billion people, and as you know, strong in terms of space warfare and raiding mentality as they are, then the Federation probably would have encountered them or at least had word of them from some of their other trading partners or other diplomatic circles within the region. And yet somehow, when Data first sees the ship that Kevin Uxbridge makes happen, he says, I have no idea what that is. You know, no known configuration does not match anything. So there's only two possibilities here. Either the Federation has never heard of this massive space power which comes out of nowhere and then is vanished by the end of the episode, or actually before the episode began, to be more accurate, but you get the point. Or that's not a Husnock ship. It's just a big, threatening-looking ship that Kevin Uxbridge made happen. Now, the former is probably what the writer intended, but it's also stupid. I prefer the latter because that makes a lot more sense. It also, it, keep in mind that we actually don't identify these people, <laughs> such as it is, as the Husnock until the very end of the episode, far past when any exposition would have been given. I mean, I, I could completely see Picard saying, oh, he's, you know, he said the Husnock are wiped out, and Data's like, oh, the Husnock, or blah, 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 blah. I've looked into this information uh, because there are raiders within this region, you know, something like that. But instead, the episode is what it is. For the sake of simplicity, I'll go ahead and refer to it as, as the ship, just to make it nice and neutral, because who frickin' knows. Um, we, ha we haven't even talked about the episode yet. I do have a couple other things to talk about that aren't related to the episode specifically, 
But we'll get to that when we get to that. Let's talk about the Twilight Zone effect, because... Or that's, that's, that's incorrect. That's incorrect, sorry. Using my own term improperly. Twilight Zone effect, for those of you not aware, is when you have a body of works, and about half of them are incredibly amazing, and half of them are incredibly awful. I've often said that Star Trek The Original Series has Twilight Zone effect as well, because there are some truly amazing episodes of DOS, and then there's the hippie episode. Uh, Path to Eden or something like that. I don't know. I hate that episode. Screw it. Anyways... No, what I want to talk about is the construction of how the Twilight Zone does things. Am I still here? Yep, okay. I'm checking the, the monitor every now and again to make sure I'm still recording, just in case my computer crashes again. Um, I'm sorry. I really am upset about that. I apologize. I hope at least this version is still as enjoyable to you guys. Lord knows, if nothing else, you know this isn't scripted. <laughs> I mean, it, I've never been scripted, but you get the point. The Twilight Zone thing is all about juxtaposition. It's all about presenting something that under other circumstances is completely normal, but then changing the context just a little, just enough so that it becomes incredibly weird. Too many people, too many authors in my opinion, try to write weird by writing about um, bananas that explode into confetti that's on fire and shoots donuts, right? Like, that's weird, but there's nothing there. It's just noise. Uh, I prefer the kind of weird where you see someone who's walking down the street and he waves at you and he's like, hi, and as you see him walking away, you see that the back of his skull is missing and there's a bunch of computer chips there. That's kind of the Twilight Zone thing. Completely normal until you see one little thing that just changes the context. And that's what we see at the beginning of this episode. It's a great hook. You get, You start the episode and you go in... It's like, oh my god, they're all dead and the planet's devastated. What is that? And there's this one square of perfectly normal. It's, it, I actually wrote down in my notes, there's a square of fine. Because everything's just fine right there. There's green, there's a house, there's two people, they're just hanging out. It's fine, everything's fine. Huh? And, of course, that's totally normal. But in context, you get it? I love that. So then they go down, and Riker's there. Uh, let me just say something else. I hate to step out of the episode one more time. I've got two more things out of episode to talk about. Just bear with me, please. One of my biggest complaints speckled throughout season one and two is when the characters would act out of character. Now, I know that there's a little bit of historical baggage going with that because obviously I've seen these characters many times in seven seasons and three movies. Four movies. God, right. I forgot. <laughs> I Nemesis actually did exist. It wasn't a nightmare. Oh, God! Um, <laughs> the point being, we've seen these characters for a long time, and so we kind of get how they're supposed to act. But I bring this up because one of the things I felt very strongly about that was a problem in early TNG was that occasionally the characters would just not act in character. And I've been pointing this out as we go through season one and season two. It's not always. It's just every now and again, it's just, huh? What? It's just they act off. Even at the time, they act off. But from this point, season three onward, with very few exceptions, for the most part, the actors and the characters are portrayed in a fairly consistent manner. And that's the key difference. For all of the crap I fling at both Michael Piller and Rick Berman, especially Rick Berman, I, I, I'm sorry, quick aside, I literally have the pillow that I usually punch. That's Rick Berman right over there, so I'm actually pointing at him right now. Anyways, you're, you're coming on screen soon. You better watch yourself. Um... For all the crap I fling at both Michael Piller and Rick Berman, I do have to admit I very much agree with what they did to try and 
overhaul TNG. I already have mentioned some of this, but one of the biggest things they did was they tried to aim for a greater consistency and believability. Uh, that comes in in the way they present the ship and the technology of the ship and the actors and the way they portray the characters. Those are the two really big things that they pushed, and in my opinion, it shows. It feels more like we're watching a consistent show rather than a sequence of events that happens to involve the same actors. In other words, it makes me feel more that I'm watching a series of events that are happening rather than watching a TV show. I know that sounds like a weird way to portray that. I hope at least some of you understand my incredibly terrible phrasing on this. But a lot of characters, the biggest ones being uh, Troy, Worf, Riker, and da uh, Picard, excuse me, all act very in character in this episode. And I quote, <clears throat> Good tea. Nice house. Very Worf. But the reason I bring this up is because of Riker. They go down to the planet, and Riker's there, and Riker is very understanding, polite, and diplomatic. Now, I like that. It makes perfect sense in hindsight, too. It's not because he feels threatened. That's not the problem. He sees two survivors of a devastating attack. He has no idea why they survived. Maybe they were hiding. Maybe there's some weird alien thing going on. He has no idea. This is just a giant puzzle. A big question mark. Very Twilight zone -y. And so he approaches them as if they would be devastated. Um, in shock, you know, willing to lash out at anything around them. So he is very measured. He doesn't insult them. He doesn't accuse them of anything. One of them literally strings him up by his foot, and as he's hanging there, he just says very calmly, Hello, I'm Commander Riker, USS Enterprise. I'm here to investigate what's going on with this, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, later on, and there's another nice touch here, there's a bit where he says, you know, I would like to look into your house. May I go in, please? And the guy says, Are you accusing me of anything? Riker says, no, of course not. I want to figure out what's going on. May I please go into your house? Note he refuses to go forward without permission. He's very diplomatic about the whole thing. And I like that. Because that is Riker right there. Um, Riker and Picard really have the same command style. Very fatherly. They approach things from a very, we're trying to meet in the middle. Both of them are willing to be steel if they need to be. But that's, that's like underneath all of the layers of silk, right? So... Now is where I rant about something again. I know, I know, I know. One of the things that bothers me about recent science fiction um, is the tendency to portray things on a scale that makes no sense. Now, this is related to Doctor Who syndrome, which I've complained about so many times in all of fiction. It's one of my biggest peeves across in writing, in general, is... Doctor, Doctor Who Syndrome, and as you know, there's the, my two big pet, uh, not even peppies, so my two big real peeves right there when it comes to writing. But visually speaking, as a director, as a, a visual presenter, too often they'll have a thing where like you look up into space and you see the spaceships come in at a warp or whatever, and it's like, how close are those ships? <laughs> like, see, here's the thing. I can understand the need for believability to outweigh realism. I do. Um... Uh, there's a game coming out soon called Starlink, where you, if you go into orbit, at, you know, if you leave the planet in your spaceship and you look around, you can physically see the other planets in the system. Now, that's ridiculous, because that's not how that works. Anybody who knows anything about space will tell you the amount of space in between planets is absolutely gargantuanly, indescribably enormous. Just the distance between here and Mars is huge. So if I went into orbit right now and I happened to know where Mars is and pointed at it, there's a pretty good chance I wouldn't see it. I might see another speck in the sky, but that's it. But that's kind of different because that's a video game and you, you know, it, it, there's other things about that. 
when it comes to visual medium of presentation, showing that kind of thing just takes me out of the moment. All I find myself thinking when a Star Destroyer or whatever warps in visible from the ground is, how close are they to the surface? Like, really? That's really, really visible, and that shouldn't be. I bring that up because that's been a... I, I, obviously, I kind of gave away the Star Wars connotation there. I didn't last time I recorded this. Um, but that's not exclusive to Star Wars. I've seen a lot of recent science fiction just kind of bend physics a little bit for the visual presentation scale. And it does bug me a little bit. It's a pet peeve. But I mentioned that to further emphasize the power of the scene where Kevin Uxbridge explains the attack of the Hoosnock. And this has all been prefaced for a single line. The ship came in so big you could see it from orbit. Now, unlike all the examples I just gave, this is not something we're visually seeing. This is a descriptor of an event. And it is presented in a way to emphasize just how terrifying this would have been for these colonists. A ship comes in that they can see with their naked eye from the planet. Now, present. this goes back to my whole consistency thing that TNG would kind of reach for for the next several years. That's terrifying. That's basically like seeing a cube, a Borg cube, show up in orbit. Like, ooh, because you could probably see a cube from orbit because it's freaking enormous, right? Um, so that's just, oh my god. And that just helps to add to the, some of the tension and some of the terror of what the Husnok threat really was. Side note, do you think all the Husnok ships and technology were all destroyed too? Just bonus question. So they go inside, and this is when Marina Sirtis really does awesome stuff, and so does the director, and so does the sound design and editor. Because what happens is Data sees a little thing, and so far, and this is again the juxtaposition thing, it's a nice, pleasant-looking house, and, and there's nice, pleasant people, and again, uh, Miss, Miss Haney and Mr. Anderson just nail their roles, although I'll talk more about them in a moment. And they're all awesome, and then it, the Data picks up the music box, and it cuts up to Troy. And the music is still playing consistent from the previous scene. And we just kind of hear it, and, it'll, and it's not quite warped and distorted. It's more echoey. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized the impression it was giving was we, were we the audience, were hearing what Troy was hearing. As in, as if the music is reverberating within her mind, and we are also in here hearing what she hears. And you'll notice every time Troy's on the camera for many scenes henceforward, uh, up until she's put into a damn coma, we have the same thing, the same music playing. It's absolutely horrifying. And very well done. I'm going to take a moment and give some huge praise to Marina Sirtis, too. She actually shows off her acting chops. Lord knows the woman can act. We've proven this before. And I do like it when, when Star Trek gives her the opportunity to act. And this is a good example of that. She portrays someone who... I'll just use the analogy I did last time. This is her insanity health. Okay, She has 1,000 insanity health. And it's chipping away like one, one maybe five, you know, something like that. Very little inslets, but as we see her over the coming scenes, especially the meeting scene, you could just see on her face and on her posture as she gets more and more uncomfortable and she's having a harder time keeping together, you could just see her slowly descending into insanity until it gets to the point where she is just a gibbering mess later on in future scenes. It's very well done, and she does a great job of it. I also want to give praise again for actors, or I should say characters acting like themselves. Notice in the scene there, and again, wonderful praise to the sound design. We zoom in on Troy and we hear the music, and the music just kind of starts overpowering the conversation of the meeting. We can still hear the meeting. And it gets to the point where they ask Troy what's going on, Troy, and it cuts back to, you know, zooms out, music stops, and Troy's like, oh, sorry, no. And so we get the perspective of what everyone else is perceiving. 
And then we cut back to her, and she's just, it goes back to her health and sanity slowly dying away. And you'll notice Riker's looking at her, concerned. I like that. Of course, Riker would be the one to immediately notice something is wrong. And in fact, if you pay attention, the only thing that draws Riker's attention away from her is the fact that he has to keep doing this meeting about this job. You know, he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, and then he looks back at her. Yeah, 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 you know. And of course, she gets up and leaves. And I also like how Picard goes after her. Not immediately, but after he's concluded the meeting. It's like, I, I don't have your abilities, but I can tell when someone's hiding pain. And she's like, no, it's silly, it's stupid. And this is another thing where Marina Sirtis nails the subtlety of it. She portrays someone who is very bothered by something, but feels like she shouldn't be. I bet a lot of you know what that feels like, too. Where there's something that's been really bothering you physically or mentally or emotionally, and it's driving you nuts, but God, it's just something so little, right? I should just keep that one quiet. I would feel so silly to admit to people how much it drives me crazy to have to deal with that. Right? I bet a lot of you could understand that feeling. And she does a great job of portraying that. So we kind of feel her in that moment. She pulls a lot of empathy, ironically, in that moment. And then, you know, and then, then later on, it just gets even more horrifying as we have medic the nurses there trying to hold her physically steady. And Beverly's just rushing in like, okay, I've got her. I'm right. Help me help you. I, let me get you to sickbay, please. And we hear the music still playing endlessly and endlessly. And Troy is just a gibbering mess, almost insensate at this point, barely capable of communication, as she is, her HP bar, excuse me, her sanity bar is like down to here at this point. It's horrifying. And it does a wonderful job of portraying what exactly she's going through and making us feel more the juxtaposition of the scene. Because they keep having scenes where it's like they're down on the planet. And there's this one in particular, I remember, where Picard is there and he's drinking the tea and just talking and having spit And then it cuts to Troy who's like, God, make it stop! Make it stop! And then it cuts back to Picard. Everything's normal. Twilight Zoney, right? Very well done. And uh, very much praise. Um, I also want to give... <laughs> Sorry for going off a little bit there. I also want to give praise to Wagner for doing a twist on the thread of the week. Now, I've spoken so many times against the thread of the week that I don't even feel like repeating myself right now. What I do want to talk about is how wonderfully Wagner used the thread of the week concept in a good way. This is why I say that the thread of the week itself isn't the problem. It's the mandatory need for it to be in an episode that bothers me. You know, the che the checkpoint problem, right? Okay, thread of the week, done. Romance of the week, done. Okay, Technobabble, we're good. Let's go home. By the way, note that Technobabble hasn't really entered TNG yet. Or Star Trek in general. Think about that for a second. We're in season three. Anyways, so... The threat of the week is obviously the Husnock. Oh my god, big ship. Da -da -da -da. There's no threat there. There's no threat there. The, well, obviously the threat of the week is, is the music in her head, which is a very personal threat. I like that. But maybe the threat of the week is Kevin. No, he's not a threat. You get it? They satisfied the need for the big, terrifying enemy of the week and wove it into the plot so naturally that it wasn't actually the threat of the week. Even though, functionally, the Husnok would actually be a threat of the week if they were actually there, by all accounts, by all of the information we do have about them. It's like, oh my god, it's a Husnok raider. Let's go, you know. Um, I also want to say praise. In hindsight, all of the hints about what's going on make sense. I mean, you can kind of tell initially, but if you pay attention to the sequence of events, you know, ship shows up, does a few attacks, 40 megawatts, remember that for a second. So 40 megawatts, okay, that's, that's nothing, that's pathetic. 
Why is this even a thing? Alright, I guess fire back, whatever. Um, hang on. It is a thousand. I can't math. Anyways, so, hang on. I'm just going to pull up a calculator really quick, because apparently I can't math. I felt like I did a calculation wrong on camera last time. Anyways, I'm going to keep talking while I do this. So, you know, the host knocks show up, and it fires at them, and obviously it can't do that much damage, because it does almost no damage to the shields of the ship. They even make fun of oh, This will be over quick, if, if you know, Riker says that, if that's really all they can uh, accomplish, right? So, hang on a second. Hmm. I just realized I don't actually know. It's a hundred, right? No, it is a thousand. I'm right. I'm right. It's a thousand. I'm right. I did my math right. We're cool. So 40 megawatts. Bzz, bzz. And then realizing that they can't damage the Enterprise, they get the hell out of Dodge. And the Enterprise follows them. The only thing about that sequence of events that is unusual in any way is the fact that the... And the ship is matching them pace for pace to the point where it's like, okay, hang on. But that's it. The next time that something really is showcased as being wrong is when the ship comes back and devastates him with a 400 gigawatt attack multiple times, which, and I just checked my math with a watch, I was probably wrong about it anyways, is a factor of 10,000. 10,000 times the damage what they were just doing. That's insane. So that's the moment where it's like, okay, something's up here. But again, you can kind of see how all of this is about trying to drive the crew away. Picard goes back down, offers a replicator. They're, they're surprised to see him. Now, I mentioned that because for the longest time... First of all, let me just say that I like the fact that Picard is the one to deduce this one. After all, he probably has the most experience with the Q amongst the various members of the crew. The only other one who could really match him on that would be Riker, and even that's kind of debatable. Um, so it makes sense to me that he would be the one to try and deduce and figure out what the hell is going on. But the other reason I bring this up is that Kevin Uxbridge is a terrible liar, deceiver, manipulator, whatever you want to call it. This is probably one of the reasons why he had so little success with the Husnok when they were actually attacking. I mean, he chases them away, and then they're like, okay, let's go back. Because he did it just a little bit too perfectly. And then we have the situation where they... So they have to leave, but then they're like, okay, we'll go back. And then they do the worst thing of all. Picard approaches this very scientifically. He says, okay, I'm going to test my theorem. So he goes down, and he says, hey, uh, I, I, you don't have to come up with the ship. That's fine. Your, your business is your own. Uh, but it is my sworn duty to protect you. I will stay here as long as you are alive, for the end of your lives. You know, he gave them the end condition. And then what's the next thing that happens? One torpedo. Now, I want to talk about that really briefly because this is more of that consistency thing I talked about earlier. Earlier in this episode, the Enterprise does a full volley of torpedoes and phasers, an alpha strike against the, the fake ship, right? The ship. And it does nothing. It just bounces off their shields. That's important for two reasons. The first is the most obvious. It helps establish the utter juxtaposition the, you know, the weird factor of one torpedo destroying the entire ship just like that. That's crazy. That should not be that way, and we know that even in this episode because one tor because we saw what massive damage did earlier, which was nothing. But the other reason it's significant is most ships should not be destroyed by one torpedo blast. Even a bird of prey with its shields down wouldn't be destroyed by one torpedo blast. At least not like that. It would be severely damaged, of course. But that's only from this point onward. 
As ever, credit to Pillar, Berman, and the other members who are working on the crew at this point in time, including uh, Ronald D. Moore, uh, Iris Stephen Bear. Uh, there are several other people who became regulars uh, on Star Trek pretty much around this point in time in season three and four, who started pushing for a more believable consistency across all aspects of Star Trek. Characterization, technology, range, distance, rules. This is about when they really started codifying a lot of the manuals as well and really going back. And uh, Mr. Okuda, who's amazing, of course, really started touching up the tech manual and trying to make everything make sense. The only problem was they had to make sense with Season 1 and Season 2, which is what really throws everything off. Because from this point on, with few exceptions, they're pretty consistent. And I mentioned that. Because in the scene where they do an alpha strike against the, the ship, they actually fire more weapons than they fired in all of Q-Who. Now, if you don't understand my point, I'm going to try and explain this as, as best as I can. Uh, this is one of those make sense in my head things, so please forgive me. The point is, up until now, budget limitations, special effects limitations, have very much hindered the spaceship battle aspects of it, the combat capabilities of the ships, to the point where one or two blasts were a big deal. One torpedo was a big deal. One phaser blast was a big deal. Because that was all they could afford to show. And so, and even in the cases where there were more than one or two shots, it was mostly, it wasn't shown there, it was shown on the ship rocking. Oh yeah, that's another aside. They do a lot better job of the ship rocking uh, from season three and onward. That was really shown in evolution, actually. But here, because TNG has finally started being popular, the Nielsen ratings are starting to come in in a favorable manner, the, the, the studio is starting to support them more, you know, the money is more there than it has been before, they're able to do this, not just so it's flashy and cool looking, which is important, but also so it's consistent. So we can see a Galaxy-class cruiser doing what that ship should be capable of. It adds believability to the setting and, as such, the show. Right? Because from this point onward, you know, we're going to see a lot more consistency when it comes to that, with, with very few exceptions. Uh, really, one of the only exceptions is actually yesterday's Enterprise, and we'll get there when we get there. Um, so, you know, they destroy the ship. And uh, this is when we really have to praise John Anderson. Now, I haven't talked about him that much yet. He does a really good job of portraying two types of two presentations of his character throughout this episode. The first is the man who is emotionally in shock. Remember, it's only been three days since all of this happened. All of these citizens were killed, along with his wife. And he wiped out an entire species, and probably their ships intact, too. Three days. Do you think that's enough to recover? Look at what he did in that absence. He hasn't gotten over it. He isn't like, okay, whatever. He is completely paralyzed by this. And you could tell because the first thing he thinks to do is just recreate the land and recreate his wife and say, okay, nothing, nope, 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 didn't happen, nothing happened. You know, he, he is straight up, uh, it's not coping, there's actually another word for it, but he's not coping is the point. He is blinding himself to the reality. And then the ship shows up. And this is so apparent, especially in hindsight, when you rewatch the episode and you see how he acts to Riker and how he acts to Picard. How he's just, he's very quiet, very taciturn, and very perfunctory. You could tell he's not capable of lying properly, especially since it's never really been a thing for him. He's never had to be like, oh, uh, yes, no, this horrible mystery, such and such, right? In fact, it's even more apparent because he's 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 really awkward or hesitant when he says just about anything involving what happened 
except when he starts talking about what actually happened. He does tell the truth in several instances, and it's noticeable, especially in hindsight, especially when rewatching, because he says it so much more smoothly and easily. He talks much more naturally about that because he doesn't have to make anything up. He doesn't have to deal with it. It's just... And he just shares it. The other portrayal Mr. Anderson gives is that of the person who is absolutely devastated with grief when he finally reveals all of this. And this is where the actor shines. He just gets across the gravity of the crime that he has committed. His performance helps sell me more than the number 50 billion does. Because his performance is far more human and far more relatable. And so we can have some more nuance to that number. That's just a number. But here we have someone who is absolutely devastated, having wiped out a species. And I have to give such special praise to Miss Haney as well, Anne Haney. Um, you'll notice every time they go down the planet, she's the one who talks the most. She's the one who is basically the face of the duo. And that makes a degree of sense. Not because she's being controlled by him, because she's not. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but also because of the way that it's just her personality, her nature, to be this way. But we're not seeing him as he is supposed to be. We have no idea what he was like before this incident. He was probably completely different. We're seeing a man who is struggling with grief and post-traumatic stress of the most severe matter possible. He himself describes himself as literally being insane after what happened. And that brings me to his powers, which I want to talk about. Because I've heard many people for many years nitpick his powers as if they don't make sense. And that makes sense if you were to presume he has the powers equivalent of Q. Here's where we have to talk about magic in a Star Trek show. Bear with me, please. Um, if I, I don't really have much else to say after this. This is the last thing I have to say. Um, so make of this what you will. But I would uh, say strongly that the Dowd, Mr. Kevin... Uh, Mr. Uxbridge does not actually have power at the level or extent of the Q. There are pretty known and strongly defined limits to what he can do. And I also have a theory, which is never stated at all in the episode, but after having rewatched it with this theory in mind, I think it's true. As ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So magic, right? Generally, there's three types of magic. Type 1 magic is fireball, fireball. You know, I don't need much to say about that. Uh, type 2 magic is... You know, just magic has no rules. It just does whatever, right? Type 3 magic is what I call rules magic and can apply to either of the two previous types of magic depending on the setting. Now, you might be like, well, hang on. Uh, rules magic, that just means like casting a spell, right? No, 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 no. Because when I say by rules magic, I don't mean... Shigamagoo! And then a fireball comes out, right? And then it makes everyone in the area healed and like you a lot. Points if you... Uh, get the reverence, but <laughs> that's not rules magic. That's just a spell. That's using magic. Rules magic is, and this is using a specific example, every time you blink, you take one point of damage. You know, you, you get hurt. It hurts every time you blink. That's rules magic. Now, if you don't understand, and this is getting into some world building, you know, how settings work concepts, if you have, you know, if you, rules magic has to exist with a preset set of conditions. It's basically a program. Um, if you are using magic to make someone hurt every time their eye blinks, 
you have to maintain that, right? This is what the cue would do. A cue would be able to have the, the uh, perception and the range and the speed and the reality altering necessary to know that you have blinked and to basically cause you damage. Basically, each time they are doing that, each time you blink. Makes sense? But rules magic is fire and forget. You write the program, each time this happens, this reaction occurs, and then you walk away from it and it just keeps going without you. Make sense? Um, rules magic is kind of tricky to use properly in settings, but having rewatched this episode, I think everything he does is actually rules magic. Uh, the way he w- functions with the ship, especially. Because one of the biggest questions is always, how can he be so pr- surprised at the presence of the ship and the fact that they're here if he can literally affect things from brilliance of light years away? We have two demonstrations of this. First, the fact that he can all of the hoofs knock away. And second, the fact that he's able to affect both Troy and the ship as they're zooming away at warp Gabrillion. That's hell of range right there. And yet he's still surprised when they come back. That's very strange. Unless what he did was say, okay, make a ship. Don't hurt them. Shoot at them. Run and keep ahead of them. And then once he set that program, it's fire and forget. He, He has no perception of that. He has no awareness of what's going on. He just has set up that, and he's walking away. Same thing with all the other encounters that he does in orbit with the, with the ship. That's okay. I want I want to do some serious damage this time. Really shake him up. Don't hurt them. Don't kill them. Just do a lot of damage, and then push him away from the system, and then get in between them and the thing, them and the uh, the house. And then, of course, the third one is run up, ignore them, come down to the planet, shoot down here, remove this. You know, we'll temporarily remove this. Three hours is probably good. And then, oh yeah, make the ship super destructible. Just and then all of that happens. Um, probably the biggest example by far is the music in Troy's head, which is God, so goddamn horrifying. Um, the idea that if a Q was doing that, to use the, to continue using the example, if it was a direct reality warper, they the moment that that Q stops wanting to hurt her, the, the, then it would stop happening because they have to maintain it. But in rules magic, with with, uh, with the way Uxbridge does it, he has to go and actually remove the program himself. He has to actually go down to recorders and stop the program, stop the rule, in order to, to cause her to be free from that. And I think that makes a lot of what he does make a lot more sense in hindsight. I, I often wonder how much that was deliberate, actually, because it lines up a little bit too neatly. My final thoughts... Please don't crash, computer... My final thoughts are about what to do with Uxbridge. I've heard people debate this for years, and I am very much looking forward to your guys' thoughts and comments on this. What do you do with him? He has killed 50 billion people. What do you do with him? How do you try him? How do you judge him? What legal basis do you use for that? How do you approach that? And that's assuming you choose to. Picard ends up not choosing to. And I agree with that sentence. I want to explain why, though. First of all, it is worth noting that this man is... How do I put this properly? This man is someone who very much gives me the impression that he is going to die on this planet with his fake wife. Now, this is presumption, but I always got the strong impression that after you know, he'd been wandering the universe for how many thousand years, and then he meets her. And he truly loves her, like actual real love, right? And then, you know, not like, oh, she's so pretty. No, real legitimate connection. And 
ends up saying, you know what, I'm going to spend the rest of our lives together. And basically is willing to die in order to end his life with hers. I got the very strong impression that not only that was true, but this is still true with his fake wife who will eventually pass on, that he will then similarly pass on with her. He has basically already sentenced himself to exile and death, a rather comfortable one, but nevertheless true. The second point, and this is far more important, this guy could literally do all humans die. Right? Rules magic. Remember, by, by, by the way it's presented, if there is a limit on its range, it's huge. And if there's a limit on its scope, it's huge. So this is the kind of person who, the only reason he is willing to go with you and to submit himself to you is because of his good graces. And we already know, for total certainty, that under the right set of circumstances, or perhaps, if you will, the very wrong set of circumstances, he can snap and in an instant do something really horrible. We also know he can't undo it. This is another reason why I call this rules magic, because rules magic, the way it's usually applied, is not a thing that can undo. There's no control Z. You can't write a rule that says this person gets back up. You can write a rule that says recreate this person, but it's not the original. The original's dead. He can't res all those colonists. He can't fix that whole colony, and he can't bring back the Husnok. So anything he does is functionally permanent. So, from a purely safety perspective, dipping your toe into that water is immeasurably dangerous. Because all it will take is a slip-up in the wrong direction, and the consequences will be difficult to properly vocalize. I also have to say, if I might be so bold, it's interesting that uh, the card's final statement is that he doesn't know what we should think about these people, just that we should leave them alone. Uh, I mentioned, it sounds very, just picture Rod Sterling saying that for a second at the end of Twilight Zone, you know, I don't know if we should do-da-da-da, just if they should be left alone. Can't you, can't you just picture that? But I mentioned that because I feel like Picard very strongly thinks, all right, this is beyond me. That, that for whatever reason, he decides that he has the humility to say, I can't judge this. I personally cannot drag you in front of a court. And therefore, he doesn't even try to. Yes, I hear you, dog. <laughs> I have nothing else to add. I'm going to chop this off before I lose let another episode. I hope you've enjoyed my second take of this, and I'll be seeing you guys next week.